Morning, Muskoka. How are we? How are those New Year's resolutions going? Have you increased your kale intake? I hope your cardio is going well. Uh, coming back up here, this is my first winter in Muskoka, and I'm not going to lie, I am not conditioned for it. Um, I talked to you guys about, like, man, winter up here is rough. And everybody has a really discouraging thing back to me, to say back to me, and it's, this is nothing. <laughs> so um, I'm going to really propose that after we've planted in Perry Sound, in Huntsville, I'm going for Harvest Hawaii. And my theme verse is going to be, here am I, Lord, send me. Listen, today we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. Start finding your way over there. And so it's, it's, it's a great time of year where we, we make these resolutions, and it's, it's simply this. I want to make myself better. I want to be a better me. And what I love about what we're about to jump into in Luke chapter 15 is this. We can't better ourselves but rather, if we're covered by the blood of Christ here today, we already have the greatest thing that we need. We're not earning it, we're not achieving it, and we're not trying to deserve it. We already have, irregardless of your kale or cardio. And so, I'm gonna, you're gonna see in Luke chapter 15, he start, Christ is talking about two parables at the very beginning. We're gonna go be jumping to the third parable, but you gotta understand the context. The first parable is a parable of a sheep that has wandered off. And a shepherd's response to seeing that the sheep has wandered off is that he goes out and he pursues the sheep until he has found it. And once he's found the sheep, he rejoices, and he brings others into his rejoicing. The second parable is a coin that gets lost. When the coin gets lost, a woman seeks to find it. And the scriptures doesn't just say she half-heartedly looks for it. She says she lights a lamp and looks diligently until she has found it. And like the first parable, when she discovers the coin, she not only rejoices, but she brings the neighborhood into this celebration. You see, each parable is building on a common theme. Each parable has a strange paradox, lostness and foundness, darkness and light, sin and joy. And so now Christ starts to go into his third parable. And it's, it's the parable of the prodigal son. And so we're going to walk through this parable in different chunks. And so I want to read verses 11 through 16 with you first. Again, that's Luke 15, 11 through 16. And this is Christ. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far-off country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went, and he hired him out, himself out to, a, to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So here we have the first character of, the, of this parable enter, and it's the younger son. And you start to see just in the first five verses, this son has broken every Jewish rule that there could ever be. 
He is entitled. He asked his father for an early inheritance. You do not do that in an honor-shame society. He is unwise because he squanders that which he has inherited. He is promiscuous. It says later on in the parable that he had spent his money on whores. And he is dirty because he is working with pigs. And not just working with pigs, he's desiring the very thing that the unclean animal eats. Simply put, the sun shows in just five short verses one thing, he is unworthy. He has brought shame upon himself and he has brought shame upon his household. He's traded the grace of his household for a pig trough. You see, this son would be the embodiment of that family member that you always feel like you have to apologize for and don't look at me and act like you don't know what I'm talking about. You just had Christmas dinner with that one uncle. It's that one that you're always like, oh man, you know what? Our family has a pretty good name, but this is that one, that person that, and listen, you want some examples of that? Alberta. Alberta constantly has to apologize for the existence of the band Nickelback. Oh, you're from Stratford? Isn't that where Justin Bieber's from? Yeah, sorry. (laughs) It's like when you go out to, to, to a lunch And you have to apologize to the waiter or the waitress because the person that you're eating with is vegan. You're like, oh my goodness, no. This person brings shame to the family. This younger son, it was dishonorable for you to be associated with him. This son has disqualified himself and has proved his unworthiness. And you don't just see that he is foolish in his living. He's stubborn in it. Verse 14 says that a great famine hit the country and he began to be in need. Do you see how he realizes that he's in need, but he doesn't come back to the father right away? His realization of his need does not lead to his returning, but rather he spirals greater because in response to his need, he now starts to work with pigs in verse 16 and now he's desiring the pig food. Verse 16 even illustrates This son is so low and is such a leper, it says that nobody is willing to give him anything. Nobody will take compassion on this son. He is a cultural leper. He is untouchable. It is as though he is dead already. See, the younger son magnificently displays his true identity. The only identity he can build on his own is unworthy. These verses show him at his own best. Now, if the parable stops there, that's a pretty depressing parable. But greater than the darkness of the sun, you can even see amidst the sun's foolishness, you can see divinely orchestrated grace enter in such small ways. You could read past it and miss it. In verse 15, I believe the pig and the pig food is even grace from God because it's showing him the emptiness of his ways. I believe in verse 14, the famine that hits the land is even a grace from God. 
Because that famine actually makes the son start to realize, I am in need. This is the first time in the parable that the son hasn't been bragging on himself and hasn't been self-focused. That famine sent a shiver down his spine, showing him who he is not. When, in the verses before it, he has thought that he is the point of everything. And then you see in verse 17, through the famine, through the pigs, and through the pig trough, it brought him back to soundness of mind of how good his father is. You see, this son thought he was running. He thought he was setting the pace. He thought that he was going to go far off. But where, where he said, oh, I'm going to run, the Lord goes, I'll set the pace. I'm going to set the pace. And you think you're going far off, but actually I'm bringing you to me. You, oh, you want to get startled? You want to go? You want to flee? You want to run? Go ahead. I'm actually going to still take you exactly where I've deemed you to go. And I love this, verse 17. And so he starts to see, I'm in need. And then he starts to come to the soundness of mind. My father was great. Up until this part of the parable, he thought he was great. And verse 17 says, and when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I, but I perish here with hunger. So here's what happens. The foolish, unwise, undeserving, unworthy son comes to his senses finally. And the unworthy, unclean, pig-stench son in his moment of need creates this plan. It's in verse 18 and 19. Look at it. I will arise to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So it's essentially this. Here's his plan. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. I am unworthy, undeserving. Just make me a slave. But here's my second point, and it's this. You start to see the exchange. Watch something that's unworthy become worthy. It's found in verses 20 through 24. Don't just listen to me. Let's go to the word. Look, verse 20. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robes and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and put shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. In these verses, you saw a collision of something that is unworthy and something that is worthy. And the exchange was gorgeous. So remember, the son's plan was to come back lower than a slave. you got to understand, in this type of culture, slaves, you still had an ability to live with the master. You had your own grounds. But he didn't even want to be a slave. He wanted to be a hired servant, which is even lower than a slave. Because nobody looks out for a hired servant. A master will look out for his slave, but the hired servant is even lower because nobody looks out for a hired servant. So he's coming back going, make me lower than a slave. I'm sorry. That's the son's plan. 
But you see in this exchange between the father and the son, the son didn't even have a chance to even explain his plan. Before the son spoke a word, the father started running to him. And listen, we're a CrossFit culture. There's a huge triathlon culture up here. We have to pause and say this. In Judaic culture, men do not run. This is a shame and honor culture. Men do not run and patriarchs do not run. You gotta understand, in culture, you know what was a fitting reunion between the father and the son? In Judaic culture at this time, what would happen is the son would come back and the father would make him sit out at the gates. And for days, the father and the entire town would shame and humiliate the son. And if the father wanted to take his son back, the son would come back crawling, kissing his feet. That was a fitting reunion culturally for this son to come back to the father. And yet this is not the reunion of how the father treats the son one bit. Look at the attentiveness of his father. Look at verse 20. While the son was far off, the father is already attuned to his son's return. He's not close. The son's not knocking on the door. The father is waiting and ready for the son. And it's not just this. Look at how good this father is. He's not just attentive. Verse 20 says, he saw him and felt, what's that word? Compassion. You know, sometimes when we translate to the English, it doesn't do it justice. Do you know that actual word compassion? It means guttural response. This is no half-hearted emotion. He sees the sun, and in response to seeing the sun's return, he is so inwardly moved that it leads to an outward movement. Do you see that? He's not just like, oh, the idiot's returned. He's just not like, he's not like oh man, what are people going to say about me and my household right now? He is so filled with love and compassion for the son that while he's still far off, he is inwardly moved with such an emotion that now he begins to run after the son. The son still hasn't even said a word and yet the father is darting to him. Anybody watching this father run, they would have shame towards that father. This is no small emotional reaction. It's a deep, nodding emotion that cannot remain idle. It leads to movement. And I love this. Look at verse 20. Once the father comes to the son, before the son even says a word, he embraces and he kisses his, he kisses his son. But here, I love to pause and just be like this. What animal was he just working with? Pigs. Did it say that he stopped off at a Holiday Inn and showered? No. No. Did he cologne himself up? No. The father, first of all, who embraced who? The son did not embrace the father. The father embraced the son. What does the son smell like? Pigs and pig food. The father embraces a pig-stenched son. The unworthy, dirty, pig-stenched son gets embraced and kissed from the very father he dishonored. Here's something beautiful. 
no words have been exchanged yet. And yet an embracing has already happened. And so now the son enrolls his plan. Let's take a look at this plan. It's in verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Let's break down that plan. I have sinned against God. True. I have sinned against you. True. I am no longer worthy to become your son. True. Make me one of your slaves. And here's the father's response. It's verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put, on, uh, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. So first of all, you see how he said bring quickly? He's not toying with forgiveness. He's not dangling reconciliation above his son. He's not making a payment plan. He's saying, bring quickly. This is what the father is essentially saying right now. As of right now, in this moment, I am restoring you to full sonship. Put the best robe on him. Put a ring on his hand and put shoes on his feet. Do not lose this imagery. The best robe is actually reserved for the male leader. It's reserved for the patriarch. It should be his and his alone. The best robe is only used for the greatest of occasions. It's like your grandmother's like cutlery. You bring it out once every three years for the greatest of occasions. So when he's saying, get my robe that's reserved for the greatest of occasions, what the father is saying is this. I want to give him my best, and his return is deemed in my mind one of the greatest of occasions I could ever think of. This is no small reunion. It's the greatest of occasions for this father to have experienced. And he says, bring the ring. You must understand, the ring had the family crest on it. What the ring meant was that the full rights and full of the full authority of the family has now been placed back on your hand. And by the way, sandals were not meant for slaves, but were meant for sons. In this moment, in the middle of his pig-stenched, foolish living, he is fully restored. Here's man's best plan. Make me a slave so I can earn it back. Here's God's perfect plan. You cannot earn it. You cannot deserve it. You can, at your core, only come to me empty and unworthy. But as I embrace you, and as I declare over you that you are my son, when I tell you that you are worthy, then you are worthy. And I tell you that you are worthy. See, here's, here's the greatest thing. At best, you know what you contribute to your relationship with God? Your brokenness. Check out this quote by John Edwards. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. What a humbling reminder. 
You contribute nothing to your salvation but the sin that made it necessary. See, culture keeps telling you how great you are, how wonderful you are. Pump you up more. Let people see your greatness. The gospel says, no, you're not. At best, you are an unworthy, disqualified, pig-stenched child of mine. But as I embrace you, I will make you something so much more because I, God, am something so much more. That's the true words of the gospel. We contribute nothing but our brokenness. And God only contributes his perfection. This is called the great exchange. You want an unnecessarily long term for it? It's the imputation of righteousness. That, that in this moment, God would take his best robe, the righteousness of Christ, and he would cover you with it as he takes that shame off of you. The most glorious exchange you could ever imagine just happened in this parable, and it happens at the cross in our lives. In this moment, the son traded the stench of pigs for the cologne of Christ. He traded the triteness of the trough for the greatness of who his God was, for the feast of the Father. See, this is what's amazing. The shame that the Father bore to embrace the Son is the same shame Christ bore at the cross to embrace you. The father embracing the son in this parable, the father put the shame that should have been on the son, he now put it on him. And when Christ went to the cross for his children, he took the shame that you rightfully deserve, the condemnation that you rightfully deserved, and he took it off of you and put it onto him, and at the same time, he put his perfection and his righteousness onto you. See, the father in this parable He doesn't just restore, he rejoices. Look at verse 23. Bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. Verse 24. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is now found. And they began to celebrate. All three parables in this chapter have the same theme, lostness and celebration. One who gets lost, one who finds. One who screws up, one who restores. One who shames, and one who rejoices. Now, I want to pause and say this. If you were a Jew hearing this story, your jaw would be hitting the floor. As you hear this parable as a Jew, you're not paying any attention to the son. All of your attention is on this father. And in the same way, I want you to know that, you know what? A lot of us deal with a lot of shame and guilt about our pasts. I I want you to know something. You're not the point. When, when the heavens look into your life, they're not in awe of you or how much you've screwed up in. They're in awe of what their God has done. And so in this moment, you start to see the point of the parable isn't the son. The point of the parable is this scandalous, amazing nature of this character of this father. That's why the idea that a Christian who makes their life about them is ridiculous. If the point of this parable is the son, I'm skipping devotions that day. It's powerless. I don't want to learn about another idiot. I want to learn about the greatness of my God. And the very fact that so many of us can make our testimonies about us is ridiculous. Because although people might know about our pig stench of our life, although people might know about the trough of our life, the greatest thing that they could ever see is not how much you've screwed up, but how much God has entered in it, redeemed it, and restored it. 
Do not make your story about you. You will ruin your testimony. And when you make this parable about the son, you ruin the parable. And a lot of times when this passage is preached, you know what the main question is? Which son are you? Do you want me to save you a couple counseling sessions? You're both. Given the right day and the right situation, you're both. You're either somebody who sins and falls short, or you're like the other son later on in this parable that looks in and is outraged by what God does and accuses. And you're like, I would never do that. But here's the thing. Every Christian loves mercy for them, and every Christian naturally loves justice for others. That's how you know when you're being the other brother in this parable. But when I read this parable, I'm not in awe of the son that's younger, and I'm not in awe of the son who's older. And just like the Jews of this time, when I hear this parable, I'm in awe of the nature and the character of the father. So here's my final point, it's this. Look at the eminence of the father. The point of the parable is not the son. The point, the apex, the climax of the parable is the scandalous nature of the father. God does miraculous, restorative, transformative work so it points to him for his name, for his glory, because he is the point, not us. So when the son wore the best robe, knowing he didn't deserve it, he didn't just enjoy that robe, but when he felt that robe placed upon him, even as he still smelled like the pig, and that robe was placed on him, that robe was so unfitting for him to wear that he didn't just enjoy that robe. In that moment, what it would lead to is a praise of the father for what he has done. And I want you to know something, you ready? If you've been robed with the righteousness of Christ and it's led to complacency, you're not wearing the robe right. If you're wearing the robe of Christ's righteousness in your life here today and you're like, yeah, I've earned it, I've been doing really well, you're not wearing the robe right. The point is not your comfort in the robe. The point is not your success in the robe. Your point is not your name in the robe. Your point is not your fame in the robe. The point is knowing that you are unworthy, that when you feel that robe placed upon you, it would lead to a guttural praise of that father, a guttural praise to your God. It would lead to an emotional stirring and movement so strong you would be forced to praise the one who put the robe on you. That a father who had a guttural reaction to you and came to you, in the same time, you would have a guttural reaction to praise the one who came to you. But here's a crazy question. Do you believe that you have a God who loves to celebrate? Do you believe that you have a God who takes joy in his children and loves to celebrate their presence? Sometimes it's a hard thing to accept. Maybe we had an earthly father that didn't celebrate us. Maybe we had an earthly, God that didn't, uh, earthly father that didn't take joy in us. But I want to ask you a question. Is your, is your God a God of joy and celebration? Because look at verse 7 in the first parable. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. Can I tell you something? I hope this is encouraging to you. God's not interested in saving people who are self-clean. That's not his ministry. 
He is interested in saving and embracing those who are dirty and know that they are dirty. God is interested in taking joy over you as a son and joy over you as a daughter when you come to him. Look at verse 10 in the parable. This is now the the parable of the lost coin. Just so I tell you, there's more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So there's a consistent theme, joy and celebration. Verse 24, look at this. For this, son, my, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and found, and they began to celebrate. Do you see a constant theme of celebration and joy over how many sinners who repent? One. Do you believe that in your life, God is not waiting for a future, better, kale-filled, cardio-enduring you but that he would take joy in you today because of his son, Jesus Christ. Do you have a God who would take joy and celebrate you? The point of the parable is the nature and the character of the father. When you make the point of the parable anything else, you ruin the point of the parable. The pigs aren't the point, and the trough isn't the point. But can I be honest with you? As a counselor, we often make the pig and the trough the point of our lives. Matt, you don't know what I've done. Matt, there is a whole background of me. You don't understand the things I've done and the things that I have seen. Matt, my pig trough reeks. Yep. Matt, my pig trough looks disgusting. Yep. Matt, my pig trough tastes horrible. Mine too. Matt, these truths aren't applicable to me. You don't understand the trough. Can I tell you something? Can I love you enough to say something harsh? I don't want to smell your trough. I don't want to look at your trough because I don't want to be dealing with my trough either. The point of the parable is to take your eyes off of the trough and onto the Father. But we can be in such awe of our foolishness that we forget to be in awe of the Father. And by the way, when you do those little swaps of like, I know God is good, um, but I don't think he can enter this. Like, I've really screwed up, and I think, I, like, I think I'm kind of beyond what grace enters. Can I tell you something? You are making more of a statement against your God than you are of you. Because at that core, what you're saying to Christ is this. Your desire in me is cute, but I'm better at sinning than you are at saving. I love you enough to tell you you're not. You're not that good because you are not the point. Make the point of the parable a point of praise, a point of celebration, because there is a father so great that he would restore that which could never be restored, and he will do it for his name's sake. So I guess my question would be, where are you today? Are you headfirst in the trough of your life right now? I don't need to ask you if you've been with the pigs or if you have a trough in your life. We all have. None of us are worthy. The Bible outed us. There's no man and woman in this audience here today that's worthy to wear the robe of Christ's righteousness. And so we'll do one of two things with that. 
especially coming to church. We're gonna do one of two things. We're gonna run to the Father and he makes us worthy or we play Christian games. I wanna ask a moment of vulnerability in this room and I'm gonna raise my hand, not as like an example, but because I've done this. Who here in their relationship with Christ since they've been saved has tried to hide, downplay, cover up the stench where they kind of lived maybe a little bit of a duplicitous life where it's like on Sunday, how are you, brother? I'm great. How are you? Great. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you as well. And all the while we have something, maybe we're like 90% on the radar, but there's like part of us that we're still holding back because we're like, man, this part of the trough is pretty bad. If you've ever done that in your life, raise your hand. You see that? Keep your hands up for a second. Look around. This is a very unclean church. And you know what I say to that? Praise God, that's the point of church. Is that we'll have this hesitation. Yeah, amen. We are gonna have this hesitation to try and cover ourselves up, to pretty ourselves up. That, that, oh man, if that person knew, if that small group leader knew this one thing about my life, I would be like this leper. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna hide it, I'm gonna keep it in the dark, I'm gonna reserve it. And all the while it grows and it grows and it grows. And so what we do at small group every night during breakout is we find something safe to talk about that we're struggling with, but we don't actually share the thing we're actually struggling with. And what we do is we kind of put on, you guys want to know what Axe body spray is? Yeah? I've never seen somebody put that on in moderation. It's always way too much. And so what we do is we live a life where we're like, oh man, we're in the pig trough. Oh man, we reek of pigs. And what we'll do before small group, what we'll do before church is we're going to put on some Christian acts. And we're going to hypercompensate. Brother, how are you doing today? I'm fantastic. Isn't it a wonderful day? Isn't it great to worship our risen Lord and Savior? What, we should do a hymn today. That, doesn't that sound great? And what we do is we try to cover up this stench with man-made religion, with man-made performance and games. Can I tell you something here today? There is no doubt troughs in this room. And there is no doubt working with pigs in this room. Can I ask you a question? Do you have the gospel boldness to take the stench to the Father? Don't take a shower beforehand. You can't clean it off. The one thing we can do is to take the stench to the Father and just own it. Lord, like, Lord, I've sinned against you. I, I have this smell in my life. I have this trough in my life. I have this hardship. One of the greatest failures of the Christian life is that God would put his best robe on you and you would just be half-hearted in your pursuit. One of the greatest failures of the Christian life is that he would put the best robe on you knowing that you screw up, knowing that you smell like pigs, knowing that you have a tendency to eat from the trough and pretend like you don't. That is a weak exchange for the great robe. Or even in the Christian life. Here's my question. Have you been wearing the robe so long that you've become numb to it? Yeah, that Christ guy is fantastic. Paid for my sins, paid for my condemnation. I'm restored to the Father. Fantastic. How's that transforming your life? Is it leading to a guttural praise? No. Not really. I mean, no, it's cool. It's great. Don't get me wrong. But, Or how about this? As this Father would celebrate you, how's your time in the Word that you would experience the ability to celebrate the Father that celebrates in you? How are you doing with the Word? Meh. 
See, our flesh will always have a tendency to try and fight the robe, to become numb to the robe, or to not believe that the robe would ever be accredited to you. Or listen, we just came off of Christmas. And so what happens is there's a million reasons that will tell you, whether it's you, whether it's the enemy or others, why you can't wear the robe. And, and it, it will list all these things that you've done. And, and like on that day, it's like, here's all the things that Matt King has screwed up on. And it would make Santa's naughty or nice list look like a post-it note. And so here's all the things that others could say about me. You don't deserve to wear the robe. Look what you've done. And there's all these things that I can say to me about why I can't wear the robe. Look at all these things that I've done. Or the enemy can come along and be like, here's all the reasons why you can't wear the robe. But can I tell you, can I tell you something that's really great? Do you know the only voice of authority in the parable is the Father? Nobody else has authority. And in the same way, when Christ would take joy in you, that he would save you and cover you with the righteousness of Christ, his voice is the only one with authority. So if others are telling you why you can't wear the the robe and trying to push you down, tell them to shut up. If the enemy is like, look at all that you have done. Look at this thing that you have in your life right now. You know that thing that you've been toying with that you've never shared with a small group and you've become the church for four years about and all this kind of stuff? This is why you'll never wear the robe. I want you to know the enemy doesn't have a voice of authority. Tell him to shut up. Or, here's a great one, nobody talks to you more than you. And you'll defeat yourself. Oh, look at me. I'm, I'm, I'm like navel-gazing. I'm just like, I, I don't deserve to wear the robe. I can't earn the robe. I can't, I can't rest in this robe. Can I tell you something so loving and so gentle but pretty abrupt? Get over yourself. You're not the point. Sometimes you need to remind you to shut up and listen to the voice of the Father. Why? It's a good voice. You can trust that voice. So listen, whether you're here and you don't know Christ, you know what your first response is? To accept the embrace of Christ, how he embraced you at the cross 2,000 years ago and offered you that forgiveness that he would give you his perfection and he would take your imperfection and put himself on it so that payment could be removed from you so that now you could enjoy the father that covered you with his best robe. That's situation A. Situation B, you're wearing the robe. You've given your life to Christ. And maybe you're here today and there's just something that's snagging you in your life. It's the thing that you don't talk about. It's the trough that's beautifully hidden. It's that stench of pigs. Have the gospel-centered boldness to go like this. I'm already wearing the robe. Therefore, I can take the boldness of what God has already done in my life. And now I'm going to address the trough. I'm going to bring it out into the light in a way in which the gospel is going to kill it through his spirit, his word, and his people. Maybe you're here today and you're wearing the robe and you're just so numb and so half-hearted. And you've become accustomed to the robe and you don't really care that you're wearing it. You know my exhortation as the band comes up to get ready to play? My exhortation is the same for every single situation. You don't know Christ yet. You know Christ, but you're struggling. You know Christ, but you're hard, like half-hearted and apathetic. My exhortation is the same for each and every one of you here today. And you know what it is? Go to the Father. Don't try to take a moralistic, emotional bath to try and clean yourself up. Take you out of the trough and take you with the smell and just go to the Father and watch what he does. Because greater than the trough, 
greater than the pigs, greater than you is this nature and character of who our God is, what he has done, and what he promises to do in your life. And the only thing that you contribute to any of it is your own brokenness. Doesn't that sound like a good 2019? Harvest, pray with me. Father God, we come before you. Holy Spirit, I pray in this moment, would this not be another time that we heard this parable? Holy Spirit, in this moment, would you be moving? Would you be speaking? Would you be convicting? Holy Spirit, would you show us that this is not some fairy tale or words on a page, but this is our God and this is our Christ. So Father God, I thank you that you are a God who is perfect and yet embraces those who are imperfect. I thank you that you gave us something greater than anything we could try and do ourselves. And so God, I pray right now as we're, we're about to praise and worship, as we're, we're literally about to worship, would we have a guttural reaction that a God who would take joy in us, that in this moment we would praise and celebrate and take joy in that God and it would be a mutual celebration, a mutual reunion, that, that in this moment a God so good as you would take deep joy in your daughters, you would take deep joy in your sons and that we would take deep joy in you. Would this not be another Sunday? Would this not be another just emotional high? Would this not just be um, something that we just... Uh, just run too quickly, but it's fleeting. But Lord, would you secure it? So God, as we worship right now, we worship as those who are covered in the robe of Christ, who are fully redeemed and fully restored. And from the identity that you have given us and you have already done, now we respond in praise and worship. Thank you, Father, in Christ's name.